Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. So I thought that we would start this morning, we would just take a handful of minutes and we would play a little game. Now there are no right or wrong answers, okay? So if you know it, you know it. If you don't, you don't. It's fine, okay? Most of you have probably heard this story as early as elementary school. Now, here are the rules of the game, okay? When I say so, I want everyone to close their eyes. I'm going to begin to tell a story. If it pops into your head, yeah, I've heard this story before. I want you to keep your eyes closed, but I want you to raise your hand. At the point where you say, I've heard this story before, and keep your hands raised. You guys ready? All right, everybody close your eyes. There was once a boy who grew up to be the first president of the United States. When he was a boy, he received a hatchet as a gift. He was probably nine or ten. The first thing he did is he went out and he chopped down his father's prime tree. When his father saw this, he went to the boy and he said, What have you done? The boy said, Pa, I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down your prize tree. Everybody keep your hands up. Now everybody open your eyes and look around. Most of us have heard this story, haven't we? But I left out a detail. Shout out. Everybody just shout out who knows it. What kind of tree was it? Say it again. Everybody knows it was a cherry tree. So why? Why does everybody know it was a cherry tree? This is not the message of this sermon, but for the purposes of this sermon, whenever the Bible mentions something specifically, listen up. There's often a deeper meaning. We can't, well, in the 1700s, rather, they couldn't just go to Walmart and buy cherries. You had to have a tree. So not only did young George Washington cut down a major economic resource for the family, cherry, and and see, it's lost on us now, but they knew it at this time. Cherry is a hardwood, which means you got to deliberately cut down a tree. You don't accidentally cut down a cherry tree. You got to whack at it and whack at it and whack at it and whack at it. To us, it's a cutesy little tale, but at the time people that understood this things, it would have spoken volumes. It said, the father of our country, first of all, he makes deliberate decisions. He plans, and when he starts something, he works at it until it's done. Even if that thing is a mistake, if it's wrong, he faces up to that mistake and he admits it. You see, brothers and sisters, integrity And that would have spoken volumes to the people at that time who was looking for someone to lead 
a new country. We're going to start this morning by touching on the, you know, by the way, I, I got to say, I, everybody seems so depressed and sad this morning. I, I wanted to start out with that game to kind of lift your spirits a little bit. And I, of course, I understand why. I mean, our favorite season of the year is over. We've got to wait a whole nother year for that season to come back. And I don't have to tell you what season that is. Everybody knows what season has passed. Tax season. Our favorite season is over. Anybody work for the IRS? Anyone a tax collector here? Ooh, Jason, we're going to talk real nasty about you guys coming up. But before we talk nasty about Jason, we're going to start this morning by just touching on the idea of ritual purity in Torah. It's something that's very overlooked. Ritual purity is often confused with sin. The two are actually very different. Ritual impurity just conveys that a person needs to purify themselves before entering the temple complex. This does not necessarily denote that a sin has occurred. For instance, burying a dearly departed loved one. Certainly no sin, but contact with said dead body made one ritually unclean. And the barrier would have to do a certain ritual like wash in a mikvah or something like that before they were again considered ritually clean. A woman having a baby, certainly no sin. In fact, it's, it's being faithful to the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. But yet, until that woman heals, she's considered ritually unclean, but certainly not morally unclean. Does that make sense to everybody? Very significant difference. And that's a, a detail in Torah that we often overlook. Now, in contrast, the deliberate act of breaking a commandment, of sinning outright, made you morally unclean as well as ritually unclean. And in Torah, as well as in the Brit HaChadashah, certain lifestyle choices, such as occupations, in themselves made you morally unclean and denoted sin. Obvious examples, murderers, highway bandits, prostitutes, tax collectors, idolaters, with whom, you know, of course, with, between idolaters, there's absolutely no love lost at all between idolaters and the Torah laws. Carving and worshiping Graven images was a stonable offense in Torah. Torah mentions time and time and time again, as well in the books of Joshua, Judges, King, Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, on and on and on and on, among others, that when the children of Israel came into the land of Canaan, they encountered what were called Asherah poles in high places. Now, archaeologically, we know a lot about these things. We know exactly what these things were. Depending on which translation of the Bible you read, Asherah, or Astarte, uh, depending on your translation, was the Canaanite version of the goddess Ishtar, worshipped by the Assyrians. She was a fertility goddess, and not only did she charge her subjects to worship her by acts of actual incest, 
and prostitution. She was also the goddess of war, who the Assyrians believed that true devotion to her meant one very aggressive and atrociously brutal military campaign every single year, of course of which Israel fell victim. Asherah poles consisted of carvings of the goddess out of a certain species of fig-bearing sycamore tree native only to the Holy Land called the Sycamorous Ficus. This was an abomination to the Lord as it was a graven image, an idol, and incited people into grievous sin. Now, by the time of Yeshua, the Jews had to deal with graven images aplenty. For the typical Jewish family, what little money was made was taxed by the Jerusalem temple in the accepted Jewish currency at the time, the drachma. Then the Romans came and took their share. It is estimated, now listen to this, it is estimated by New Testament scholars that out of every amount of money a Jewish household made, 50% was taken in taxes. 50%. And to make matters worse, the Romans did not accept the drachma as currency. No, you had to go to your local tax collector a Roman collaborator who would very willingly take your drachma and exchange them for Roman currency, but cheat you blind in the process with a highly inflated exchange rate that the Romans did not monitor and quite frankly could have cared less about as long as they got their share. Who has a dollar bill? Who has a dollar bill? I've got this shiny quarter. Now, unfortunately, we Romans don't accept this paper dollar bill. But since you need to pay me taxes, I'll give you this, that you can pay us in taxes. I get the 75 cents. I keep it as a tax collector. That's how it worked. To make matters worse, to make matters worse, these Roman coins, when they were minted, they were stamped with graven images of usually naked Roman goddesses and gods, idols, that the Jew had to touch in order to exchange. I mean, to add insult to injury, right? It's like the Jew had to touch this, and for a Jew to just survive under pagan Roman domination meant knowingly, knowingly touching an object that the Torah stated would make you not only ritually unclean, but morally unclean. In our terms, it would be just like accepting your paycheck and depositing said paycheck would make you a grievous sinner in the eyes of Torah. Can you imagine? And of course, if this was not already too much for the observant Jew to have to accept, just to squeeze a little bit of lemon juice and rub some more salt into that wound, that these tax collectors were fellow countrymen. They were fellow Jews, just like the capos in the concentration camps during World War II. You see, at this day, day and age, if you were rich, 
you could bid on becoming a tax collector. The one with the most money up front won the bid, and this practically guaranteed that you would be financially set for life. Case in point, remember when I, what I said earlier? Whenever the scripture mentions something specifically, pay attention. There's a lesson behind it. The Brit HaChadashah mentions that Matthew, the disciple, was a tax collector. It also goes to great lengths to mention that Matthew was a Levite. He was part of that priestly aristocratic class, which means he was old money. Okay? He had the money up front to bid on and win the position of tax collector. Tax collectors, by their very profession, as I already mentioned, were seen as morally unclean just by the profession of cheating their fellow Jews. Just like prostitution, just like being a highway bandit. They were the equivalent of modern-day extortionists, modern-day loan sharks. Holy Spirit earlier gave a word to Robert, mentioned Zacchaeus. And so it was that Yeshua was passing through Jericho. Something else mentioned specifically, Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was chief tax collector and was very rich. And he sought to see Yeshua but could not because there was a great crowd and he was small in stature. He ran before the crowd and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass by that way. When Yeshua came to that place, he looked up, he saw him. Yeshua saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, come down, for today I wish to stay a while with you. Pardon me. What do we know about Jericho in Second Temple times? We know that Jericho was a very prosperous city because of its fruit industry, namely dates and figs. And we know that these figs grew on a special species of sycamore tree known as the, you guessed it, wait for it, the Sycamorous Ficus. I tell you this to make the point that the story of Zacchaeus has been reduced over time down to a cute little children's story. There's, there's even a little song about it. Maybe you've heard it. My parents used to sing it to me when I was little. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And y'all heard this? Wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree, but the Lord he wanted to see when the Savior... Yeah. I assert you that to the original hearers of this story, though, they would have understood this story as anything but a cute little children's story. The story would have shaken their souls. You see, Zacchaeus, by his very profession and choice to work in that profession, made himself an unclean sinner. And by, associ by associating himself, whether conscious or not, with a symbol of idolatry condemned by Torah that was punishable by stoning, Zacchaeus guaranteed 
that he could have lost absolutely everything. Zacchaeus, he was a man of power. He was a grosser mensch, for those of you that grew up with smatterings of Yiddish here and there. He lived in a prosperous city. He most likely came from a prosperous background, and he lived like royalty. The finest clothes, the finest house, the finest food, and let's just loosely use the word, all the companionship that he would have ever desired. But something happened. Something inside Zacchaeus' soul cried for reconciliation. Cried for acceptance. Cried for forgiveness from from Messiah. Zacchaeus, even though up he was in his tree, in his heart, he was confessing. He was absolutely prostrate before Yeshua. Prostrate before the Lord. I'm sure that every single one of you that's hearing me right now in this synagogue can vividly remember, probably more vividly than you want to remember, a time where you in your heart were absolutely prostrate before the Lord. For, for those of you that couldn't attend the cedar and didn't hear my testimony during the Passover cedar, very, very briefly, uh, when I went to college in the late 80s, early 90s, I, I made no apologies about being messianic. When my Jewish friends found out that I was messianic, they accused me of being some sort of undercover spy sent by the evangelicals to convert them all. Well, I lost all my Jewish friends. I was told by the leader of the prominent Christian group on campus that I was going to be, quote-unquote, spewed out of the mouth of God because being messianic, I was either hot nor cold, but lukewarm. I sank into an agonizing, agonizing, long depression, and I spent many a sleepless night prostrate before the Lord. At the risk of of just giving y'all a big old fat TMI from my own life, yeah, I'm going to risk it. When my children and I were going through let's just say a very tumultuous time in our lives, Uh, one of them started to exhibit cutting behaviors. I was prostrate before the Lord. Stress got to one of them so bad that they were actually diagnosed with a stress ulcer. How many six-year-old kids do you know get diagnosed with a stress ulcer? I fell prostrate before the Lord. We got through it by his grace. Those cutting behaviors stopped. And that stress ulcer healed. I was prostrate before the Lord with gratitude. When I was told that my wife's visa would take at least two years to process because anyone, of course, coming from Colombia, South America, was suspected of being a drug mule The lady had just spent the last two and a half years of her life in a convent, but they were suspecting her of being a drug mule. 
I fell prostrate before the Lord. When the visa arrived after in the mail after 22 months, again in gratitude, I was prostrate before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I've been there many times. I'm, I'm sure I'll be there again many times. Perhaps some of you are there now. Either by absolute exhaustion and anguish, or by gratitude, I encourage you by saying that each time I was there, eventually I heard the voice of Yeshua. And if any one of you who's, who's hearing me now, either here present or by the podcast, if any one of you is prostrate before the Lord, if you listen, that still small voice is saying to you, Come down. I wish to stay a while with you. Come down. I wish to stay a while with you. Just like with Zacchaeus and Messiah Yeshua, restoration is here. Thank you so much for listening. Shabbat Shalom.